0: Welcome to the New
1: Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The scene is Turkey in the mid-to-late 70s. A young male college student hops onto a bus and sits next to a cute female student from his class. But before they can strike up a conversation, they see a right-wing passenger walk up to another and hit him on the head with a hammer. The young woman screams. The two students get off the bus, only for the female student to call the male student a disgusting fascist and leave in anger. Scenes like this are seen in Turkish Kaleidoscope, Fractured Lives in a Time of Violence, a graphic novel written by Professor Jenny White, illustrated by Argun Gunduz, and published by Princeton University Press. The book combines Jenny's own experiences in Turkey with insights gleaned from interviews to illustrate Turkey's political conflict in the late 1970s between right-wing and left-wing movements. Jenny White is a social anthropologist and professor at the Institute for Turkish Studies at Stockholm University. She is former president of the Turkish Studies Association and former president of the American Anthropological Association Middle East Section. She has published four books and numerous articles about contemporary Turkish society and politics. She also has published a series of three novels set in 1880s Istanbul. Today, I'll ask Jaya to talk about the central figures in her telling of Turkish politics and how their views developed over time. We'll talk about that period of Turkish contemporary history and what it was like, and we'll also discuss her choice of format. Why write a graphic novel? So, Jenny, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Um, perhaps it's best to start with talking about. This broader period of Turkish history that Turkish Kaleidoscope deals with, what's happening in Turkey politically, what's happening economically, what's happening in terms of its relations with the rest of the world?
0: Thank you, Nick, for having me on your show. Um, It's a great pleasure. Uh, In the 1970s, Turkey was a very inward facing country, uh, both uh, economically, you, you couldn't get anything or almost nothing that wasn't locally produced, um, there wasn't a lot of export or import, people were could not easily travel abroad, you, you weren't allowed to take any money, Turkish money abroad. Um, so it, it, um, it, you know, there was a lot of poverty, but it was ev- evenly spread, you know, there was a small kind of middle class and, and uh, elites. But, um, you know, it, it was just a, a very kind of, politically also naval gazing country, um, the, the, uh, the government and the military were very concerned about their borders, the 19, the borders of the state, and weren't that much concerned about what was going on outside of that, those borders. They were members of NATO. Uh, Turkey was a member of NATO, but that was about as far as it extended. And what happened during that period was that in 1971 there was a, a coup. And after that coup, the constitution was rewritten to be actually more liberal. So it suddenly allowed uh, unions to be set up, labor unions. Um, so a lot of uh, associations grew up. Um, many of them left-wing associations, um, and they they came in all kinds of flavors, like you know, um, uh, sort of Soviet. Communism, so European socialism, Albanianism, Maoism, Cuban flavor, uh, and, and they all started competing with each other. Um, and so the, the situation on the ground became more and more uh, violent uh, as different groups uh, fought with different leftist groups fought with each other. But also, there was a right wing uh, in Turkey that um, uh, it, that didn't have the same kind of, you know, connections abroad. Um, in fact, that, that was one of the things that drew the, the right wing together is that they thought that these leftists were basically selling the country out to all these other countries, you know, trying to bring in foreign, um, uh, foreign lifestyles and ideas that would undermine the authentically Turkish uh, aspects of their lives. So, you know, they were the, the right was very concerned with, um, you know, saving traditional society from these leftists. Um, and by, by that, they mean a strong family with a father who has authority, the proper relationships between men and women. Um, uh, there's also a heroic history of the Turkic warriors from Central Asia. Uh, you know, as opposed to this kind of socialist, communist rhetoric, um, Maoist rhetoric that, you know, completely uh, denied all of that. Uh, and also Islam as, as a, not Islamism, not political Islam, but Islam as a kind of a bedrock of civility. Um, so they had this very romantic notion of the, the traditional lifestyle, a traditional family, authentic Turkish life. That they were trying to protect against these um, these groups that were, you know, working at the behest of the outsiders um, to undermine all of that. So those groups, um, uh, after this new constitution, were able to form actual associations, and um, they set set up their you know their tables. In the universities so the universities were some of the first to become radicalized and some universities were all leftist some were rightist um, uh, my university I was there myself as a student for three years during this period my university was half and half so the students would be like shooting each other in the hallways and there was a military encampment right outside our department the Department of Psychology they had literally set up their tents out there in their mess hall um, and I had to kind of walk through them having dinner uh, to get to the bus downtown. Um, but it was it was a feeling of, for me, of safety, because their job was to be there and to march between the two groups of students shooting at each other and separate them, take them in jeeps to the, or in their trucks to the opposite ends of the city and dump them out there. So this was sort of everyday occurrence. Um, and the thing is that it spread. It spread way beyond the universities um, it, to the grade schools. Kids were, were fighting each other in the grade schools. Um, you couldn't walk down the street without being shot at or, or hearing a bomb go off you know, down, the, down the road. Um, there were uh, military or gendarmes everywhere with their, their guns at the ready. I once did a little game of trying to walk down the street without having a gun directly pointed at me with someone's finger on the trigger, and I couldn't do it. Um, so, so it was such an incredibly tense situation, and it it also this was reflected in the um, um, in the government as well. So, the government consisted of a bunch of different parties, political parties. That's why I call it the kaleidoscope. <laughs> um, so, all these parties would constantly change position in, in these different coalitions. And whichever coalition was on top, so if they were a right wing coalition, they would change the people in charge of everything that their ministries uh, would control. So, you know, suddenly um, uh, one of the leftist universities, uh, once the the government became a right wing, um, or a right wing, politicians took control of the Ministry of Education, suddenly all of the people who made tea and brought them to your offices, the people who worked in the library, they were switched out for right-wing thugs who then would stand there with clubs and um, threaten the students who were trying to study. Um, They they would do things like throw dynamite into a group of students having lunch and, and so on. So and then and then when the, the kaleidoscope would turn again and a new coalition would take over the Ministry of Education, then they would replace all those people with leftist people, and all the right wing students would be kicked out. Uh, so this was a, a period where um, just there was dysfunction at every level of society and government, and the economy was crashing. Um, by by the end of the nineteen seventies. Uh, there was a, there was also an oil crisis in there somewhere. There were a lot of other events that, that affected this that I'm not going to talk about, but by the, by the late 1970s, things were so bad that, um, I, so I left in 1978, but I received a letter from a friend in Ankara who said that um, they were unable to get Coal. You Turkey mines its own coal. That was how Turkey, Turkish households heated their homes, but they were they didn't have the gas because of the lack of foreign currency. They didn't have the gas to to power the trucks to bring the coal to the to the capital city. So people were burning their furniture, and she told me that she put um, oranges in the refrigerator so that they would not freeze. So this is this is the situation. Um, and, 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 you know, there's just a, a churning of violence, uh, you know, with, with different groups killing each other and and just fighting. Uh, there were there were also, even the, the police force was split, so there were right-wing police force and left-wing police force, also the army, you know, and the government. And um, so that was that's basically the situation. I, I have to say, though, that uh, I often get, when I talk about this, I get Turks saying, but I, I grew up then. I was a child then, and I remember I had a great childhood. And then they remember that they did hear sounds of gunshots and, and bombs and, and such, and people looked worried. But for children, of course, they don't have a clue you know, what's going on. Of course, it was a, a lovely childhood. You, know, you had the great food, your relatives, um, you know, and all these things going on in the background. Uh, you don't actually notice it. I think it's the same in all kind of war scenarios where you live through it and it becomes normal in some bizarre way, feels normal. And um, you only notice it when it stops. So after I left Turkey, I went to England from there and I was in a cafeteria and someone dropped a tray, at which point I I kind of freaked out, Um, you know, because uh, clearly I had some kind of post-traumatic stress syndrome that I wasn't aware of. Um, but that, I think that's what happens to people. They, they think everything is normal until the violence stops. All
1: right, so I'd like to actually talk about, um, I guess, how you kind of wrote the book, because it's clear from your answer that, that, that much of the book, well, maybe not much, but but definitely parts of the book are based on your own experience in Turkey, um, and you've combined those with interviews that, that you did um, with with Turks who lived through that period. Um, and uh, you've kind of taken all this information and put them together into the characters of the book. Um, there are probably kind of four the, – the book kind of presents four major characters um there's there's Yunus and and Narai who are on the left wing side there's Farouk on the right wing side there's Orhan who is probably semi neutral semi leaning towards the right um so maybe I guess we should talk about kind of how you how you took your own experiences how you took the experiences of others and then kind of put that all together into into creating the 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 characters you see in in your book
0: um so, so some of it is my experience, but I what I wanted to do was um, kind of triangulate, you know, using other people's experience. So the, I did thirty two interviews with a, a large variety of people who were at that time either in the cities or in the countryside. Muslim, non-Muslim, um, men and women, people who were just bystanders or people who were leaders. So, um, you know, I, I didn't, when I did the interviews, I didn't try to guide it too much, except to, I wanted their, their experience of the time. And I, one of the things I did is I didn't let anyone talk about ideology because once you go there you you know what the Maoist is going to tell you about maoism, <laughs> and i I wanted to know how did you get involved in this stuff you know um, what was it like you know to, um, who were your friends uh, what happened when you were in once you were involved uh, what changed your mind about things so i I just let people talk, and to my surprise um this was this was a very interesting experience because for me because the people who spoke were just reliving these things. Most of them were just reliving. I, some of them went on for hours and hours and hours because they they just wanted to get their whole story out. It was very passionately recounted, passionately lived, relived, uh, and it was. And I realized that these people had all been. At a very formative age at that time, they were all in their late teens and early twenties. so what I was hearing was not just politics, what I was hearing was you know coming of age stories, turning points in their lives and you know this was a very important thing that happened to them or that they were involved in, and nobody had seemed to have ever asked about it so and the stories were which you'll see in the book, because the the stories in the book, even though it's called the graphic fiction, the stories are real stories. Um, I in order to get those thirty two people's stories into the book, I had to um, combine the characters and combine the stories so that you have these four main characters who are composites, uh, you know who you get to care about and follow through uh, their lives. Um, you start with their youth uh, and you, you, you look at how they, you witness how they're initiated into violent group activity in various ways, you know, unwillingly, by accident, like, like Orhan was completely unwilling. Others did were by accident um, or because their friends were there, um, were in it, uh, or their, their family was involved, um, or they read a book, uh, a certain book or they had certain beliefs. And so there, there was a, a huge variety of ways in which uh, people become involved in political violence. Um, and then what happens is that many of the ordinary dimensions of life, including very trivial things, become politicized and they become really big in your life uh, and can you know lead to big changes in your life. In one case, it was a, a T-shirt um, you know, that, that made somebody, you know, think differently. And um, uh, so, that, you know, that one of the things I think the book shows is this contingent and somewhat random quality of political engagement and violence. It's not that somebody believes something and then goes out and acts on the basis of that. It's much more complex and subtle and, and diverse than that. And I, th- I think one can learn a lot, not just about Turkey, but about how these things work. Um, you know, the uh, political engagement and violence, um, you know, the role of emotion in all of this, um, for interpersonal relations, how they, uh, uh, you know, how political engagement is embedded in imperson- interpersonal relations and emotion. So a lot of these things came out in, in, in these interviews through these stories, and I, I what I did was I had initially planned to write a scholarly book, and um, based on some other research I had done previously, and combining it with the interviews, and I did a few articles like that where I was looking at factionalism, you know, the origins of factionalism and, and so on, but I realized that. You know that it flattens the stories. It completely flattened the stories to to you know chew through these uh, these interviews and, and analyze them, and and it's like pinning a moth to the wall. You know when you collect the moth, it's not alive anymore. And so I realized after I looked through all these stories, I I thought you know I really want to do a book that has these stories somehow in there. And so I I approached. My editor at Princeton University Press, which had published my previous scholarly, normal scholarly book, and I said, "You know, I'd like to. Can I can I do a scholarly book, but with with maybe um, photographs or stories or some other way of of keeping this this these stories alive?" And he, it was interesting. He said that the market, the book market, isn't set up for that. The book market is set up um, for uh, textbooks that are texts and may have a few illustrations, or graphic books. And that there's the, they can't sell a book that's a combination of that, that's neither nor. But But then he encouraged me to do a graphic book, a completely graphic book, which, of course, I hadn't, Considered Also, I can't draw, so <laughs> I had to figure out how on earth I'm going to do this. Um, but he also gave me um, the proofs for a book that Princeton University Press was publishing that was a serious graphic book about the history of philosophy, um, and then another one about a problem in physics. And then so I, I bummed around some bookstores, and I realized this is a thing, that the serious graphic books is is actually something that's become quite popular. And, you know, even university presses are interested in doing that. So that was how I started. And, of course, I had to I had to get an, a, an artist to help me. Then I had to get a grant to pay for the artist to help me. Um, so the, this was a long process. The, the first grant proposal I wrote was eight years ago. So it's been eight years since... The first proposal to get the money to do the research, the interviews in Turkey, and then um, to write the book—you know—the um, the whole process of writing uh, a graphic book was something I had to learn, and then to hire another grant to hire the artist. Um, so it, it's from from start. To today, or or to May fourth, when the actual publication date has been eight years, <laughs> and someone said to me, "But it's only uh, you know just over a hundred pages," and I was like, "You have no idea." <laughs> um,
1: I know it's like some someone's got a exactly. draw those It took pages? a year and a
0: half to actually write the screenplay, the the, the storyboard, which is really much more like a screenplay, um, and then have Ergun draw. this, which involved many, many trips to Istanbul and sitting there going through every single word, every single image. Uh, The first thing that happened was I I wrote an 80-page kind of, you know, treatise about what should be in the book, and I gave it to him. And he said, what do you want me to do with this? I can't draw this. I can't draw what's in people's heads. So I realized, okay, this I had to re- redo it. And so, at the end, what you what you end up with after you learn how to do this is is something very much like a screenplay, where door opens, someone comes in, and then there's the speech bubble, someone says this, very brief, maybe a little box with some explanatory few words, but that's it. You have to get your entire analysis into that. Uh, So that's what took the year and a half, you know, hours and hours of just sitting there with with Ergun where I explain what I was imagining and he does little sketches. And then we talk about every single word. Should it be action? Should it be an actual word that someone speaks? Should it be omitted? Can we do it some other way? The last time I saw him, which was just before the pandemic hit, um, I went to Istanbul and we, we worked straight through for 13 hours, not even sitting down for lunch to, to try and iron out all the, the final little details. you know At the very end I discovered that that somebody has a mustache on one page and not on another page. <laughs> so I had to go back and fix that. Um, but it was it was an exciting process and I realized that, Doing a graphic book actually allows me, as a scholar, to say a lot more, which which seems kind of counterintuitive with a lot more, less fewer words, to say a lot more about what I think is going on than just doing the the kind of articles that I was writing beforehand. Um, You know, when you talk about something like um, factualization, what what you're really talking about are these complexities that I mentioned before. These this wide variety of motivations that all gets ironed out when you do the the analysis, right? So so you have you can put in all the subtleties, all the contradictions, um, you know, all the the different levels, of the, the way people change, the motivations of why they change, in these pictures with with very very few words in the dialogue. It's it's an amazing thing how much more nuance and kind of lived history you can put into a graphic book than if you did this the usual way of just flattening everything out and explaining it. In, in the book, you don't have to explain very much because it's there. People who read it will see it. Um, so this... A colleague of mine in the U.S. had uh, permission to use an early uh, copy of this um, uh, before it was published and uh, in her class on Turkish history. And I read, she had her students write evaluations or what they thought about the book. And then I actually zoomed in and talked to the students about it. And I was so impressed by how much they got out of the book. About the 1970s in Turkey, about the actual history, um, but also, you know, other kinds of things that they that made they made them think about something like, what is the difference between, you know, what happens between a disagreement and violence? You know, how do you get from disagreement to violence? What's in between there? Uh, so some of them brought up the attack on the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol. Uh, you know, the, the, someone brought up the fact that she feels uncomfortable on campus because, um, uh, because she has different views from other people. Uh, you know, the, these are students, you know, mostly middle class students who've never thought about violence. You know, where can disagreement go and why would it go somewhere close to violence? So I I feel very happy about that because that's my that was what I was trying to accomplish.
1: I'd like to ask kind of one more question about, about Turkey, um, specifically maybe about um, how maybe the politics of today's Turkey differ from the politics you talk about in in uh, in, in Turkish Kaleidoscope. Um, I know the book kind of caps things off with a short, um, kind of, where are they now? It kind of briefly mentions the, uh, the, uh, Gezi Park protests of 2013. It kind of returned to some of the characters as they've, as they've aged and what their children have, have done. Um, but I guess kind of if you can maybe talk about what, how today's Turkey is, I guess, either similar or different to the, to the time of Turkish history you're, you're talking about in your book. So...
0: There was a coup in 1980 that basically brought all this to a screeching halt. And um, the, 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 the military basically took over the country for three years in this extremely brutal um, crackdown, mostly on the left, but also somewhat on the right. And... I went back. I left in 1978. I went back in 1983, and I didn't even recognize the country. The country was so different um, because, in the meantime, uh, in 1983, there was a new uh, elected government, and it was run by uh, an economist who, Özel, um, Özal, uh, who, who actually transformed the Turkish economy, opening it to the world market, lots of export-import, suddenly color everywhere. In fact, that's reflected in the book because the 70s were all in black and white, mostly in black and white, and then you get to the present and it's in blazing color because that, that was the impression I had. Um, people were traveling. Um, you know. But the one thing that happened was that nobody... Nobody would talk about the 1970s. It was as if it never happened. Right? And and for a long time, there was very little written about it. It's only recently that there's been any interest in it at all. Um, and I can see why, because, you know, why? First of all, there was this whole generation of people whose lives were ruined by this, either by the, the sorts of things that went on in the 70s or by the, um, the crackdown by the military. So they are the people who really don't want to talk about it. They don't don't want to talk about it to their children. They they want to get on with their lives. Uh, They want to be upwardly mobile in this new economy. So, So that's a very different Turkey. But there's still this undercurrent of polarization and violence that came out in different ways um, that I won't go into here, but but um, the let me just say that Turkey today is as polarized, or perhaps more polarized than Turkey was in the 1970s, and the it's actually even more dangerous because in the 1970s you kind of knew who was on what side, right? Even if you were in Feuding leftist groups. You knew who was in what group. You knew who was a rightist because they had. It was very conformist. So if you were a rightist, you had a certain shape of mustache. If you were leftist, you had a different mustache. They had different clothing. It. It. You know. You could identify someone by by the the markers of their hair or their clothing from far away as to whether they were your enemy or not. In present day Turkey the the labels for who is with you and who's against you have changed so if you peel off the labels it all looks very similar just the labels have changed so now but now it's more it's also more dangerous because you don't actually you don't know who could become your enemy next right so there isn't there aren't these clear-cut differentiations Um, there are you know, you could be accused of being belonging to a group without ever belonging to the group. You can be accused of their different groups. You know, some of them are religious groups. Some of them are um, like the, the, the Kurdish uh, PKK. Or you can, it doesn't matter anymore. The, the Turkey has basically is no longer has the rule of law in any way. Um, so you can be accused by your neighbor. You know, snitching is encouraged. So, you can be accused by your neighbor of being a member of this banned religious group or or the PKK, or very implausibly both, um, and be arrested where, where you haven't done anything. you haven't you don't have any ideology, you haven't actually, you know well, you don't belong to any group that you that you were aware of. So because everyone could become the next enemy, could be assigned to the enemy group, um, things are much more diffuse and if violence does break out you know who is it going to be against you you can't tell um you know the, the boundaries between us and them are constantly shifting so i find that very disconcerting and um people have asked me for the, for the first time in in for the first time ever so do you think that what happened in the 70s could happen again. You know, this kind of outbreak of violence across the country, you know, where everybody's involved, whether they want to be or not, because there's no middle ground. So we've come to the point now in Turkey where there's no middle ground, but you, you don't know who the groups are. <laughs> you don't know exactly who the enemy is. The enemy could be you. So, um, you know, we, we can't answer that question unless we understand why there was this violence in the 1970s. And that's one of the things that I think hasn't hasn't been really studied. The, the people who have studied the 70s until very recently have basically focused on the ideologies, you know, the Maoism, the, the different groups, um, how, they, how they work together or against each other, a very kind of Cold War, you know, ideological analysis, um, but not... This sort of thing about why why did people do this why did people get involved what happened there so once this is one of the things I'm trying to answer with this book um, and once we understand that we can see whether some of the same things are going on in Turkey which I which I think they are um, you know and and so the book asks very universal questions really about what causes people to sacrifice their lives and their health, sometimes their families, for a cause but also for an autocratic leader because every one of these groups in the 70s had an autocratic leader. That's another thing that's being replicated is the way that you have um, these uh, political parties uh, even Turkish businesses are arranged around a a single individual who is in charge um, and to whom loyalty is owed There's very little. Um, uh, like it's the, the, the positions are not necessarily merit based or even seniority, how long you've been there. There, the, the real question in Turkey today, as it was in the '70s, is you know, are you loyal uh, to your leader? Um, and if you're not, then you become uh, a traitor. The, the Turkish word is "hayin." Right. So you're either you either um, look up to and and obey uh, the heroic leader, the the leader who's always put up there as a hero. Um, this goes for the present uh, politicians as much as for the group leaders in the 70s. And if you disagree, because the relationship is always personal the relationship to the leader is personal. If you disagree with the leader, then that becomes a personal betrayal and you are you become the traitor, right? And in the 70s, like in the Maoists, for instance, if you disagreed with them and you wanted to leave the group, they would send an assassin after you from your own group. So being called a traitor in Turkey in public is actually... Even though it's very common, because this sort of thing goes on all the time, it's also very serious. You can get death threats. Um, so the, these are the, some of those patterns that I see that are still continuing, and the question as to whether or not the violence will escalate, um, we will see. You know, I, I don't. I don't know. It depends on a lot of other factors where things go from now on, and and the book I think just tries to. Um, help to understand um, the relationship between people's lives, ordinary lives, and um, political engagement and violence? You know, what is that link? How do you get, like the student said, how do you get from disagreement to violence?
1: So thank you for listening to our interview with Professor Jenny White author of Turkish Kaleidoscope Fractured Lives in a Time of Violence. One actual final question. Um, Jenny, what's next for you, and where can people find your work?
0: Aha! Well, uh, you can get Turkish Kaleidoscope uh, in any bookstore. It comes out May 4th, which is next week. and uh, Or you could order it from Princeton University Press directly. Um, so it's, it's out there. <laughs> uh, there's also, I want to say, there is a, uh, an annotated uh, Spotify uh, playlist of songs and mu- music from the 1970s that I developed with a colleague that is available at my website, jennywhite.net. Um, so don't go to jennywhite.com. It's a fashion site with lingerie, which is not me sadly. But um, it's jennywhite.net. And, and there you will find two things. One is a very cool little video that the press made about the book, and also this um, playlist. So it's two hours of music that's been specially selected um, for uh, uh, music of the 1970s. Um and actually, one of my colleagues, my Turkish colleagues who works in the U.S., wrote to me and said that it made him cry. <laughs> so if you're if you're Turkish and you're nostalgic, or if you just want to hear what a soundscape of what this was like as people went through their ordinary lives in this you know very violent setting, this is this is the playlist for you. Um, and then what's next for me? Actually. I was giving a talk about the book, and someone in the audience said it would make a great play. Um, And I thought that's a brilliant idea, except that I don't know how to do a play. But on the other hand, I didn't know how to do a graphic book either when I started. So uh, maybe that's in the works. Um, I have some other more boring scholarly articles I'm at work on, and so I just keep writing. That's that's all I do, (laughs) just write. And that's what I, I will continue to do. Thank you very much, Nick, for having me on. This was a great pleasure.
1: No, and thank, and thank you for coming on the show and talking about uh, Turkish Kaleidoscope. Uh, so you can follow me, Nicholas Gorton, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gorton. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural, and you can find countless other author reviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. We hope you subscribe and listen to the Asia We hope you subscribe listen to the Asia Review Books podcast now found on all your favorite podcast apps: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends who you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for interview with Mayor Afshan Faruqi, author of Ghalib, A Wilderness at My Doorstep, a critical biography. But before then, thank you so much, Jenny, for joining me today.
0: It was a pleasure. Thank you.